0: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer.
1: Welcome to show number five of the Open Apple Podcast, recorded on Friday, August 5th, 2011. This is Ken Gagne. This is Mike McGinnis. And how are you this evening, Mike? Are you recovered from Kansas Fest? Slowly, I'm getting there, yeah. It's not an easy process. There's a lot that's published and produced out of Kansas Fest, and it takes a while to absorb it all in addition to catching up on your sleep.
2: Absolutely, and then there's the, for for you and I, there was a 10-hour drive back to Denver after Kansas Fest. I think Tony is still driving, isn't he? Tony Diaz?
1: Yeah, and actually I just got an email from him about 10, 15 minutes ago saying that he was passing through Denver.
2: Uh, Like, right now?
1: More or less. We may wait to have him on another show since we already have a guest this evening who will be introducing shortly.
2: Okay, well, we'll just wave as he drives by then.
1: Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. Before we get into this month's show, we have some letters to the editor, I guess you would call them, although we're not really editors. What do you call letters to the editor when you're doing a podcast?
2: Uh, people yelling at us for the mistakes we make. <laughs>
1: and a couple of compliments along the way. Well, that's true, yeah. So let's go in no particular order. We had several kind folks on the CSA2 Usenet newsgroup. group telling us how much they love our show and one of those gentlemen was Antoine from Brutal Deluxe. However he did at first say that he felt that our shows had gotten significantly longer and he was right because our first show was about 36 minutes and our most recent show was an hour and 47 minutes.
2: yeah we, we tend to ramble sometimes and, and I think sometimes that's good and sometimes you know maybe we could I don't know edit ourselves as we as we record.
1: Well, I think the reason that we've gotten longer is not only have we introduced more segments like the retro views, but we're also just getting more into the groove. We're getting more comfortable doing a show and speaking into a microphone. So there's naturally more for us to talk about. We're not in such a rush to say goodbye.
2: It also means that there's just a lot of Apple II stuff to talk
1: about. Absolutely. And we tend to talk about almost all of it because we only do one show a month. So if we publish... If we do an hour and a half show, that's only about 20 minutes a week because you can pause and resume listening to the podcast at any time. We do have various segments in the show that are natural stopping points, and we put the time marks for those segments in the show notes and in the ID3 tags for the MP3 file. If you're ever wondering when each segment stops and starts... You can find out just from looking at that where to pick up next time.
2: Sure. Yeah, that's the great thing about podcasting is this, uh, or at least this version of of podcasting is this isn't live. So you're not required to sit and listen to the whole thing at one time.
1: Although we do hope that you do sit through each episode to its end because, you know, we do try to cut out anything that we don't think you want to listen to.
2: Right. Well, and a couple of people mentioned to me at Kansas Fest, and maybe to you too, Ken, was that one thing that they did was they just loaded up their iPods before they left to drive to Kansas City and listen to every episode on the way.
1: That's one of the reasons we published an episode just before the most recent Kansas Fest. People like you and I who had a 10-hour drive to Kansas City or Carrington and Jeff who had even farther to go. An hour and a half show is barely gonna put a dent into their entire trip, so we figure one long episode can't be a bad thing.
2: No, I, I don't think so.
1: We also had a letter from Derek, who attended our Kansas Fest Vendor Fair and Exhibit Hall. He was not a full time attendee, although he certainly hopes to be so in the future years. He said he loves our show, but that it sounded like you, Mike, were kinda of down on the remastered, remodeled, re-release of the Commodore sixty four that we talked about last month. <sighs> <laughs> I think that says it all.
2: All right. No, I'm not down on it. It's just the great thing about this hobby is is that you can approach it from all different kinds of angles. For a a guy like me, uh, I want the original gear. I want to play with the stuff that came from the Apple assembly lines in in Dallas and and other places originally back in the 80s. Uh, A a box that is dressed up to look like, in this case, a Commodore that doesn't use the original keys. and, And I don't even know if that's the original... Commodore 64 shell, or if they've re- remanufactured that as well, just doesn't hold a lot of interest to me personally, but I'm not slamming anyone who gets enjoyment out of playing with a more modern, basically an emulator in a box that looks like a Commodore. I mean, if that's your thing, hey, great, go go to it. You can get a Commodore 64, the real thing, plus a bunch of accessories and discs and, and everything that you need to get up and running with a real one, for 100 bucks or less on eBay, and this new machine costs several hundred dollars for the cheap one, and I think the, mo- the high-end one is almost $1,000. So uh, for me personally, I don't see the appeal, but hey, if that's your thing, go to it.
1: Right. In a way, you're almost paying more and getting less because it's just the shell of a Commodore 64. It's not a C64. Right, exactly. But for some people, you know, the C64 or any other retro computer might be a mere novelty. They'll play with it for a few minutes and then get sick of it because compared to today's computers, it just can't do much. So they might see the C64 as actually the best of both worlds. It has that old-time, old-school aesthetic with the power that you need to use it in today's world. Yep, absolutely. So I can see how it might go either way.
2: So my apologies, Derek, if it sounded like I was down on, on anyone who wanted to play with that sort of thing.
1: And our final letter was a correction from last month's episode. In the eBay section, we were talking about a SCSI Terminator that I found, and the comment was made that it was a 50-pin Terminator and therefore not very practical for Apple II users, and that was actually incorrect. The SCSI card on the Apple II does take a 25-pin instead of a 50, but then depending on what cable you have, the other end might be a 50-pin, and connecting to a 50-pin Apple II device, and therefore you would need a 50-pin Terminator.
2: Sure, absolutely. And in fact, uh, as soon as we had wrapped up recording the last episode, I walked over into my office, and I had out on the desk three different CD-ROM models that work with the Apple II that would use a 50-pin connector. So uh, that was totally uh, my mistake for not researching it more carefully before I opened my big fat mouth.
1: And that said, we do make mistakes on this show. We try to research some stuff before we actually get on the air. And we do a lot of editing. As we said at Kansas Fest, when you add in the preparation, the recording, the editing, and then the publishing, about 12 minutes goes into every minute of every finished podcast. We leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor as we're looking things up to make sure that we're right. We don't always get everything right because we're sitting here having a conversation that's meant to be informal as opposed to scripted. If this was a show that we were getting paid to do, and especially if it was a show we were charging people to listen to, then we would have the incentive and the time and energy and motivation to really meticulously study everything that we say on this show to make sure we get it right. But this is something that we want to make different from other media that we already participate in. For example, Mike, you do a lot of writing for Juice GS, and you research that stuff thoroughly. And even in that media, sometimes things get wrong and we own up to it on there as well. But... We don't want this to just be an audio version of suggest We want this just to just be two guys chatting. And there's a lot of stuff about the Apple II that I don't know.
2: Sure, uh, me too. That said, we always welcome letters, um, suggestions. And, and if you hear something that, that we get wrong, please write in, let us know. And uh, we'll definitely make sure we acknowledge that and try to do better next time.
1: Yes, we've been getting stuff wrong since the first episode when Alex Lee told us about which Apple II game was the first one to be translated to an arcade game, and we owned up to it on the second episode, and we'll continue to do so. Yeah, so we do. We do appreciate people listening and catching things that we miss and letting us know about it.
2: This isn't uh, the first mistake that we've made, and it won't be the last. I promise.
1: <laughs> Although we do try. <laughs> hey, this is Sheppy, and you are listening to Open Apple. Enjoy. Whatever the quality of the show, we are fortunate to have people who still actually want to be on it, and this month we have a very <laughs> special guest. Greetings to Apple II user David Schmank.
3: Oh, well, thanks, guys. I'm a very special guest. I don't know how I warrant that.
1: Every guest is a special guest.
3: <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah,
2: we just like to have another voice uh, out there.
3: Oh, excellent. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
1: We understand we're catching you in the middle of some travels.
3: Always. It seems that uh, the month of... July and beating of August, all we do is drive. Now you're
2: you're out on the west coast, is that right?
3: That's right. Uh I was in Lake Tahoe this morning, I'm in San Jose right now.
2: It must be nice.
3: <laughs> well driving driving through uh, California on Friday afternoon traffic is no fun at all.
2: Well there is that, yeah.
1: So David, what brings you to the Apple II community? How long have you been a part of this group?
3: Oh well, originally I started playing around with uh actually our neighbor had an apple II he brought in from his uh lab. He was a professor at Purdue and he and his son and I started dissecting it. And that was back in about 1980. Later that year, I actually got my very own from my parents. If you look back at the uh, cost of an Apple II back in 1980 and and getting a, you know, 14 year old kid, you know, one of these things, not knowing really what they're useful for, it was a pretty amazing leap of faith on my parents' part. Uh But uh, I think it paid off in the long run.
2: Not only are you an Apple II user, but you and I have something else in common. You are an Apple III user.
3: Yeah, well, I'm not really so much a user as a dissector and just a poker and prodder.
2: Okay. <laughs> and what to you appeals to, to Apple's first miserable failure?
3: Because it kind of was a miserable failure. <laughs> but you actually guys had mentioned something in one of your previous podcasts about, uh, you kind of left it there, what, what the most sophisticated 8-bit computer was. And quite honestly, I think it was the Apple III. It had a lot of, yeah, a lot of really interesting technology built into that thing, given this time frame.
2: There there were plenty of articles uh, at the time in InfoWorld and and other not necessarily Apple specific publications talking about how the Apple III, uh, the technology in it was far, far advanced for anything else at the time.
3: Yeah. So I think that's the fascination for me and probably for you as well.
2: Absolutely. Then it's fun to bring it out at Kansas Fest and watch people ooh and ah.
3: Yeah, well, I didn't originally go out of my way to pick up an Apple Three, but uh, I was working at a a little nonprofit in our town that was using some some storage space at the local elementary. And as they were, this is a a building that was just a, a temporary building, but it had a, a storage space underneath it, and they were going to take that building down into Reno, and so they were having us vacate. So I went down below to pull out some of the. Uh, equipment that we had stored down there and lo and behold in this corner I spot an Apple 3 crushed by a stack of chairs of all things. Oh, wow. (laughs) Hopefully I won't get in trouble for this with the authorities, but actually I mean, it had been there for at least 20 years, so I kind of went back there and I kind of freed it from its uh, cage of chairs, (laughs) quietly made off with it. (laughs) I'm guessing nobody missed that. (laughs) And then when they finally did move that building, they had obviously found other stuff associated with it, and it was all sitting out in the snow, and that's where um, I found a a box, a COBOL programming language box, still in the shrink wrap, wow. sitting in the snow, and that's what I think you are scanning in currently.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, you you dropped that off at, at my room at Kansas Fest.
3: Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what to do with it. I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, if you can't figure out anything else to do with it, you just scan it and put it online and hope people will appreciate it.
3: Exactly. And you you do such a fantastic job of that, by the way. Oh well, thank you. So, David, what have you been doing with your Apple II lately? You know, I I used the Apple II probably to about 1986 when I used it basically for a dial-in terminal one. I was in college, and I kind of put it away. And then about uh, eh, mid-2000s, I kind of picked it up again when I I discovered these uh, Apple IIs sitting in the snow. I think I kind of mentioned along with the Apple III. So I kind of got back into programming it and then realized where all the tools had developed into, and I thought, well, gosh, you know, this is still a fun uh, device to program. And coming back to it after you know 30 years in the software and hardware industry kind of gives you a, a different perspective on on what the hardware is capable of and what you want to do with it. I can imagine. I actually had uh, I was a um, professional acquaintance of John Carmack when I worked at NVIDIA, and uh, at one point he uh, started working on some device driver code for the uh, open source X server, and he sent me some email saying that. Uh, he was working on uh, device fabric and I said, well, fine, if you're going to do that, then I'm going to start writing games.
2: Now, this is John Carmack of id Software?
3: Right, and you wow. can guess which one of us is more successful. <laughs> 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 so, uh, that, was, that was my thought of saying, you know, looking at uh, some of the, the software technology, where it has taken us, and, and you know, the amazing things that John Carmack has pulled off over the years, and I thought, well, gosh, you know, maybe we could, uh, for the 30th birthday of the Apple II, maybe uh, make it do something that nobody ever expected it to be able to do. Yeah, so taking modern tools, I originally was going to do a a self-hosted program, but you know, gosh, it's really hard to do that. (laughs) The tools are very primitive, so using modern tools, modern emulators, and kind of inspiration from uh, Castle Wolfenstein 3D, I went off to um, create my own sort of 2.5D raycasted first-person, and I'll say stealth, because I didn't want to do a shooter. I didn't want to uh, you know, make it just a run-and-gun kind of game. And uh, so I kind of investigated some technology, and I put a little uh, demo out on the uh, uh, CompSys Apple II group just for people to peruse and, and get some feedback on and then for the 30th birthday of the Apple II back in 2007, I unleashed upon the world this uh, Escape from the Homebrew Computer Club, which uh, was a sort of a silly premise for a game where you are Steve Wozniak and you're trying to escape from the uh, Homebrew Computer Club after showing off your Apple II for the first time and uh, all the bad guys are out to steal your invention. I
1: had never played your game before, and so Kansas Fest was the first time I'd seen it. And I was really impressed because I was one of the beta testers for the Apple II GS version of Wolf 3D. And I know how many obstacles had to be overcome to get that kind of graphical display on the 16-bit Apple II. And to see something similar on the 8-bit, I honestly didn't think that was possible.
2: Wait, so this is a a, a 3D type, not like David said, like it's not a shooter, but a 3D game on the Apple II, the 8-bit Apple II? Correct. Wow,
3: and I made sure it was going to run on the actual hardware that was available in 1977. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm an eight bit Apple II kind of guy, so the 2GS doesn't hold a lot of interest for me. But uh, the idea was to present something that would run actually, you know, on on a, a Rev Zero Apple II that uh, would have kind of blown people away back in 1977.
2: Well, it's blowing people away in 2011.
3: Well, that actually kind of tickled me because I did this back in 2007, and and I thought uh, people had just kind of gotten bored and tired of it. So uh, when I did this session, I didn't really expect much uh, much interest in it.
2: Well, for me, I remember when you uh, released it in 2007, and I, and the title kind of threw me, and I, I sort of went, I downloaded it, and I went, oh, I'll look at this later, and and never actually played with it. Kansas Fest this year is the first time that I've actually. You know, sat down, looked at it, and played with it, and man, that's just amazing stuff.
3: <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys were, were uh, liking it. Uh, Absolutely.
2: And I know I wasn't the only one.
3: Yeah, it was just kind of a fun little, uh, like I said, stupid computer tricks.
1: <laughs> well, in the Apple II community, that's all it takes to be famous. <laughs> <That's
2: right. laughs> we are easily amused.
3: <laughs> that, that's good. <laughs> but uh, there was so much stuff um, that people have done that... Has absolutely, you know, been mind-blowing. The stuff that Michael Mann has done, you know, for instance, uh, is just, quite honestly, amazing. You know, he, with people who who have had, you know, I said like thirty years more experience in, you know, hardware, software development, coming back to the Apple II, and and kind of re-envisioning what it's capable of doing, uh, it's quite impressive. You know, because. That's what I think attracted us all to the Apple II in the first place was that here's a here's this open machine that you can configure and you know poke and prod and make it do anything you could imagine and that's still true today.
2: Yeah, I'm guessing you know for for a lot of us that's why we keep coming back to this machine.
0: Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with Two News.
1: So the biggest news in the Apple II community is everything that just happened a few weeks ago at Kansas Fest, the 22nd annual Apple II convention held in Kansas City, Missouri at Rockhurst University. All three of us were there. For me and Mike, this made, let's see, this was your sixth time attending, I think? Uh, I think so.
2: What? Five, six, seven, nine, ten, 11. yes,
1: six. And this was my 14th time, so that means seven times at Avila, seven times at Rockhurst. And for our guest, it was his very first time
3: that makes me, what, a K-Fest virgin or something?
1: Yeah, you were, but we, <laughs> no longer. we, we popped your cherry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, David, what was it like attending your first Kansas Fest?
3: Well, it was uh, quite interesting. In fact, I decided to drive out from Lake Tahoe. I do not recommend that. It's a 1,700-mile <laughs> drive one way. That kind of put me kind of off kilter as I got there. But I will say that the, as soon as I walked in the door what what it just really impressed me and amazed me was just the organization how how everything just flowed I mean it was so well organized and everybody was just so friendly the second you walk in the door that that's that was the first thing that hit me
1: well, I'm glad we fooled you as far as the
3: organization goes <laughs> yeah one,
2: one of the men responsible for all that organization uh, is sitting right next to me
3: of course, and uh, he did he had it uh, running very very well
1: well there are- it's a huge committee responsible for this event, and I just happened to be the first one to show up.
3: Sure, I don't believe that's that for a second. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, what were some of your concerns or expectations going into K Fest?
3: I didn't really know what the content of it was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be a bunch of you know guys reliving their their childhood playing you know Load Runner and Pac Man, and there certainly was a little bit of that. I think what was really interesting to me was. Um, the high level of, of, of technical content, just uh, everybody's real depth of knowledge surrounding the Apple II and, and, and other things as well. But it was just, re- I mean, it was almost like a professional conference, except that we were talking about a computer that's 30 years old. <laughs> Did you
1: find that level of technicality intimidating?
3: I didn't. Uh, I thought it was really quite refreshing to find so many people still really applying their knowledge and time, really, uh, to this computer. I think it it was really amazing to me.
2: I know this is a a college dorm instead of a convention hall that you might have expected as a newcomer, but um, did you find the facilities okay?
3: Having that one dorm room was actually a pretty brilliant way to keep everything together without forcing us to go out in the 110 degree weather. Otherwise it could have been pretty miserable having to tromp across campus and uh, end up at our destination fully sweaty and, and miserable.
1: Yeah, Kansas Fest hasn't always been so compact. There have been years when we've been residing in a student hall on one side of the campus and giving our presentations in a building on the other side of campus.
3: Oh, because I thought it was really nice. The uh, the basement where most of the presentations were given I thought was was a really good venue given that uh, we were during the day and we had a projector, so it was nice and dark and cool down there. Plenty of seating for everybody and then having the lobby available for either impromptu sessions or just hanging out. I thought it was really kind of fun. It, w- it kept everything intimate without feeling like we were stepping on top of everybody at th- all the time.
1: Yeah, I'm just glad that the hall we were in was able to accommodate everybody because our attendance numbers this year were actually significantly up. We had about 42, and we've had as few as 23, which was, I think, our first year at Rockhurst, and but we haven't been above 40, I think, probably since Woz came in
3: 2003. Oh, that's great. And there were so many people that actually almost difficult to meet everybody like I wanted to so uh, you know I tried to, to get around as much as I could but uh, yeah having so many people there and it was it was great it was just hard to, to, to really uh, meet everybody that was there
2: well it sounds like you have a good reason to come back next year
3: <laughs> I won't drive this next time
1: <laughs> good idea <laughs> what were some of the highlights of your week
3: I think clearly the most impressive thing at uh, K fest this year was the CFFA 3000. Uh, Rich actually put me to work soldering some of the, <laughs> some of the components <laughs> on there. I don't, didn't appreciate that too much, but I got a good deal out of it. Unfortunately, I don't have enough compact flash cards to go around because I, I actually have, I hate to say it almost hoarded the previous version of the, the CFFA. So uh, I'm now actually out of CF flash cards, uh-huh. and so <laughs> I, I was uh, scouring the house looking for an extra flash card to put into my new CFFA 3000.
1: The CFFA 3000, Rich's former CFFA has been around for years and has been widely used and enjoyed. What's new about the CFFA 3000 edition?
3: Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, Rich probably can, can talk to that much better than I. And, and certainly David Schmidt has done, and that's, oh, another thing. David Schmidt and David Schmank were actually two separate people. A people <laughs> really? Are you sure? a, lot people, no. a lot of people get us confused. <laughs> <laughs> David Schmidt has a much better. Uh, way of presenting himself, and his, he does he does videos about a lot of the ADT Pro that uh, he's very involved with, and also has been very involved with the CFFA 3000, and he does, like, professional grade videos on these things.
2: Well, there, there's you, there's David Schmidt, there's David Craig, the one who posted all of that, uh, the documentation uh, on the Apple II and Apple III, and then there's Dave Adelini of the Washington Apple Pie.
3: Right. <laughs> We have to start changing our names. Yes, I think so. And don't so. forget Dave Lyons. Oh, that's right. And Dave Lyons. Yeah. I guess it's a good name to have if you're associated with the Apple II. I suppose so. <laughs> but the a 3000, I think, is just a stellar, amazing product. And Rich and Dave have put so much time and effort to it. I think it really shows with this feature. Being able to emulate not just a um, – well, it doesn't actually emulate, but it is a, like a hard disk, replacement for a hard disk. But the ability to emulate a floppy drive with disk images that you normally run with your emulator, I think is a fantastic leap forward.
1: And remind me, does it have a USB interface as well?
3: And that's, I believe, how it does the disk, the floppy disk emulation, is use a USB thumb drive with these emulator images, you know, a a .dsk or .po type of diskette image, and it will. Show up inside of your Apple II just as like a an Apple II floppy disk itself.
2: Oh, so you don't you don't have to go through the the steps then of, of plugging your your Apple II into a modern machine, loading up ADT, and reconstituting these images on a floppy drive. You just copy them onto the USB drive. Is that correct? And then plug it in, and they appear as as real floppies.
3: Exactly. Wow. And, uh, I haven't had the actual experience to try it out yet, but um, Rich was showing me all the. Uh, you know, in our in our dorm room, he had it all up and running, and it was just blown away by it.
2: Yeah, he put on a a really great impromptu session, um, and and kind of showed the Kansas Fest attendees sort of around the the new features, and it was a uh, it was really impressive. I think everyone there was was kind of blown away by that.
3: Yeah, if you haven't ordered yours now, order it, (laughs) because I think they're going to go very fast.
1: Yes, I think so. I saw an update on A2Central.com that of the original 300 that he built, only about 80 are left
3: already.
2: Wow, that's quick.
3: Yeah, I think there's some seriously pent-up demand, and then with the new features.
1: Yeah, I've mentioned on this show that I was going to be first in line to order one, and Rich is probably back home fuming because I haven't lived up to that promise.
3: (laughs) Well, I actually, I got number one.
1: Well, you deserve it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's the benefits of being Rich's roommate at K Fest.
1: The reason I haven't gotten one yet is because I'm currently two thousand miles away from my only Apple II. Oh. And I don't think I could tolerate that sort of delayed gratification of buying a card and not being able to install it for another
3: six weeks. <laughs> well, you should you could probably find another Apple II lying around there somewhere.
1: I think I'll just wait till I'm reunited with my machine and Hopefully there will still be some CFFAs around. I understand the ones that were sold at Kansas Fest didn't have what Rich considers the final version of the firmware, and he appreciates those early buyers basically being beta testers, which is why he gave them a slight discount. So maybe by the time I'm ready to get one, it'll be what he considers complete.
3: Boy, you know, that's another nice feature about this, this new CFFA 3000, is to do a firmware upgrade. All you do is copy this bin file into, onto your CF card, and plug it in, and it automatically recognizes that there's a new firmware image, and it reprograms itself like right there.
2: Wow, now that's really nice because I, I have that that iDisk that was made by the Korean company a few years back, uh-huh. uh, which has some similar functionality as you know as far as disk images and and things like that. But the process to upgrade the the firmware on that card uh, involved basically getting a programmer and doing it yourself. So being able to just load that bin file is is really neat.
3: Yeah, and it makes being a beta tester so much easier. I imagine.
1: I remember when I had the RamFast SCSI card, every time they came out with a new firmware, I'd have to send back the chip and they would send me a new one with the new firmware on it.
3: <laughs> Isn't technology great? Amazing. <laughs>
2: Unlike Ken, I don't really have an excuse. I actually bought one of these cards at Kansas Fest, and it's sitting in my office, uh, still unopened.
3: Sadly, so is mine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not like we don't have enough other toys to play with. That's true. true. (laughs) Now, you seemed to know Rich Dreyer before you even got to KFest. How was that?
3: Well, yeah, we go back a few years. I think the CFFA product is about the greatest thing that happened to the Apple II pretty much ever. And Rich is very, very open with it, and so he had the firmware source code and I was kind of just perusing it, kind of curious how it all worked. And I noticed that there was a uh, loop that transferred data from the actual CF card and it was doing a little extra checking that didn't really, wasn't required in that part of the loop. And so you actually remove those checks from the inner loop and speed it up about 30%. And so I contacted Rich and I said, you know, uh, great product, I love it, but here's a way to make it maybe a little bit faster. And so that actually started a a relationship that we've kept up over the years. And uh, in fact, it was him and I prodding each other to actually go to K-Fest this year. So that's why we were roommates. We didn't know what to expect, and we figured uh, it would be a safe bet to be each other's roommates.
1: So that was the first time you'd met?
3: Uh, No, we'd actually met face-to-face at the the Vintage Computer Festival out here on the West Coast. That was at the... um,
1: The Computer History Museum?
3: The History Museum, thank you, yes. And so he had come out uh, years ago when uh, that was still going on out here. And I met he- him and Dave Lyons at that a couple of times. But that was about really the only face-to-face time we've really ever met. David, what was
1: your favorite presentation from Kansas Sess?
3: Well, that would be kind of hard because they were so diverse. Just all, all the sessions were just were just so impressive. Daniel's work on, on not only his Hackfest entry, but dissecting the two GS chips and how they actually functioned on the inside, he black boxed them. Although I didn't really get to to see his presentation live, I was still recovering from my drive.
1: Daniel's session on the timing mechanisms of the Apple II is actually the only session I missed out of the entire week because you, Mike, and I were in a room with Carrington recording an episode of this show, which we didn't do too great a job publicizing, but it was called Open Megahertz. It was a combination of Open Apple and one megahertz and it was basically like a live show from Kansas Fest. Tried to combine the best features of each of our shows and the best qualities of all three hosts. It was just a short show to get let people know what was happening while they should have been at K Fest.
2: Well, more like two and a half hosts. It was you and Carrington and then me trying to wake up. I can't believe we recorded that at nine o'clock in the morning. I was still half asleep. You know we did it we did it on a Friday, I think, and, and at that point for me the sleep deprivation had really started to set in, so
1: well, you know, I went back and I listened to the show later, and Carrington put us both to shame. I don't think he got any sleep at all that week, and he might as well have just hopped out of bed because he was ready and raring to go.
2: Yeah, that, he's really, really good at, at podcasting that bastard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so
2: Go back to Canada! <laughs> there was one thing I wanted to correct. Uh, we talked about uh, wizardry um, being programmed in assembly language, and that's why... Uh Silver and Castle was done in basic to prove that it could be done in Basic and I'd said assembly language and Wizardry was actually programmed in Pascal. Not that it's a big difference, but it is a difference. So
1: I'm sure if you'd gotten some more sleep you would have gotten it right. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's that must have been what it was. But later that weekend we had our own session about open apple. We talked about what goes on into a production of the episode. We played 15 minutes worth of bloopers from the last five episodes. We actually had to call that down from a half an hour. And that was a pretty effective demonstration in my mind of why we don't do live episodes at Kansas Fest like Ryan has in the past.
2: What were some of your other favorite sessions, David?
3: Uh, Ivan's work on networking the two GS and the twos together was actually quite interesting since I've spent quite a bit of time myself doing that. And to find somebody else who has dissected and got working this this old technology with the new technology I think that, that's another thing that I thought was very interesting, is how people applied new technology to our favorite computer, our old 30-year-old Apple II. Sheppy's Sweet 16 emulator is amazing, and he knows probably more about the 2GS than anybody living, I, I think.
1: Sweet 16, in my opinion, is the premier Apple IIGS emulator on the Mac.
3: On any platform.
1: Eric Shepard, or Sheppy, who recently divested himself of Syndicom and gave it to Tony Diaz, has used his newfound availability to get back into coding and released a couple of products at Kansas Fest, including an update to Sweet 16. I think he does this almost every time he releases an update is he releases it the first week of Kansas Fest or the first day of Kansas Fest. And by the last day, he's released another update because people at Kansas Fest download it, immediately start using it and find bugs and report to him. And he spends the rest of K-Fest fixing them.
3: His own little personal hack fest.
1: Pretty much, that's a good point. But this new version of Sweet 16, I uh, have some pretty nice updates. It supports uh, mouse wheels and two-finger scrolling on trackpads, which is something that a lot of people are used to for navigating Windows in the Mac. Now they can do it in the Apple II as well. He completely rewrote the sound code to use a more modern system. He added some helpful in-program cues for when you're using the full-screen mode or changing the zip emulation speed to make it clearer what you're doing and how to take advantage of it. It sounds like a, a pretty nice update.
3: I load it on my MacBook Air, and that's uh, like having a small little portable 2GS.
1: Exactly, without paying for an Apple 2GS laptop. <laughs> uh, he also released SideClick 2.0. The original SideClick was Sheppy's actual HackFest entry a couple years ago when he removed himself from the judging panel and decided to actually enter as a participant. SideClick adds the ability to right-click to the Apple 2GS, which is, again, something else we expect in modern operating systems. And the new version lets you right-click on icons in the Finder to do Get Info and stuff like that. I haven't installed it myself uh, because I don't actually spend a lot of time in the Finder. But I imagine for those who do, it really closes the gap between GSOS and Mac OS X.
2: Yeah, this is not a utility that I've had any um, experience playing with, but it sounds like it could be, as you said, very useful for people who uh, use the Finder a lot.
1: Now, another product that was shown at Kansas Fest, which I was impressed with since we were just speaking about Sweet 16, was the Pseudo 2 emulator that Martin Hayes has been working on. This is a Java-based...
3: I thought it was JavaScript. Yeah, it,
2: it is, it's a JavaScript uh, uh, web-based emulator.
1: Right, and this is something that he can load onto almost any machine, such as... I think he was showing it actually running on his jailbroken iPhone.
2: He had it running on his iPhone, and, and he and I uh, played with it uh, Droid X... Uh, We couldn't get it completely working. It wouldn't load an image, but for what it does, it does it really well.
1: I know that he actually got to Kansas City a couple days before Kansas Fest, and that way he was separated from all the distractions of his home life and was able to dedicate himself to working on this project for days going into Kansas Fest because he was so intent on getting it running and running well. He told me how the more features he added, the slower it got. And so he basically, in the end, just had to dedicate himself to optimizing it, not adding new features, but just getting it running at one megahertz speed.
2: He said that he was inspired by another online Apple II emulator and, and he showed it in his presentation. And that one, I forget what its name was. It wasn't in color. It didn't have sound and it was really, really slow. Uh, so this represents definitely a, a step
1: forward from that.
2: And I don't think this one has sound either, but uh, other than that, it's, it's a big improvement.
1: Doesn't the FTA have an online emulator called ActiveGS, which Bill Martins uses to run the virtual Apple site? Uh, They do, yeah. So how is this different or new, Um, what Martin's done?
2: Well, I guess we're going to have to get Martin on to tell us
1: because I don't know. I'm sure he could probably go into a lot more technical detail than (laughs) either of us could. I think so, yes. What I found really fascinating was one of his audience members was Jason Scott, recently an employee of Archive.org, the Internet Archive. Jason said that Martin might be able to get funding to finish this emulator because it would open up a whole new way to access historical and archival material that was created on the Apple II. That's very interesting. I hope that works out. Uh, But now we're all back from Kansas Fest. Uh, Bob Bishop came and gave a great keynote and stayed for most of the week. Jason Scott, a former keynote speaker, was there. The Kansas Fest committee is already into full swing, planning next year. We're doing drafts of... The logo for a new design. We are reaching out to potential keynote speakers. We are securing the dates for next year. Uh, Nothing has been confirmed, but I'm pretty sure it's going to start around July 18th. Excellent. That will be on the website once it's definite. Great. We think everybody should come back. Last year, we had seven first-time attendees, and of that class of 2010, all seven came back this year. We had five first-time attendees this year, and I hope that we can get most of them back next year.
2: That always surprises me that, I mean, not not to say that, that this is a whole, uh, Kansas Fest is a bad thing and people wouldn't want to come back, but it's it's great to see that it, it keeps growing. It, there's this ebb and flow. Some years it goes down a little bit, but it always seems to come back.
1: Yeah, I mean, I once asked Michael Mayan why he bothers coming back. Not that it isn't worth coming back, to, but for some people, they want to do something once in their lives just to experience it, and then they can go home and say, okay, I did that, on to the next thing. But Kansas Fest doesn't seem to be like that. They keep coming back, and we want them to come back because that's really how you grow a community is not by getting fly-by-nighters, which we also appreciate, meeting new people, but getting them to keep coming back and become members of the community and contribute something such as giving presentations, which some people come to Kansas Fest a couple of years to acclimate themselves before they have the courage or something that they think they know enough about to present. Some people do it on their very first time, like David did.
2: I'm an example of the former. I showed up for a few years and just sort of enjoyed the show and and kind of got to meet people and and get comfortable. And then 2010 was the first year that I gave a presentation. And I got to tell you, it makes for me it made a really big difference as far as just feeling a part of the activities and and being involved with what was going on rather than just sort of a, a an observer.
1: Yeah, last year I had five presentations and I had it was probably wow. like one or two a day for the entire week. This year, all my presentations were. On the very last day of the event, I had a panel that I was going to moderate until our last episode of Open Apple, where, Mike, you suggested that Jason Scott could do a better job than I could. I
2: said no such thing.
1: Nonetheless, you motivated me to offer him my session, and he gladly accepted. And was it a success? It was a success. It was a great session. He did a great job moderating. And I was glad to have one less thing to think about, because even if I wasn't presenting on anything just making sure all the other sessions have what they need to go well is a big part of being on the committee but nonetheless having all my sessions on the last day made the rest of the week kind of tense because i like presenting and i had to wait the entire week to present it was like being a little kid before christmas <laughs> anyway so david what will you present on next year you've already as far as i know homebrew computer club is your claim to fame are you how are you going to top that
3: well, I've got a couple of little projects I'd worked on. But for this past year, actually, I wanted to apologize. I actually had to leave on Friday. How dare of this you? This year. And I did, because <laughs> I had to drive back, because we were going on vacation on Monday. So I had to drive back and I missed that great last day. The vendor fair looked like it was fantastic. Um, so I'm sorry I missed that. For next year, looking forward, a couple projects I've got. Uh, one was Again, more stupid computer tricks was a Java virtual machine that runs on the 6502. If you want to ask why, there is no... It's kind of like because, you know... why <laughs> there, wasn't, there was no good reason, to be honest with you. I don't know. That was something I threw out on comps this Apple II a couple, uh, about a year ago. That was Some people thought it was moderately interesting being able to do multitasking and virtual memory on an 8-bit Apple II.
2: I played with that application and it was cool. I enjoyed it.
3: It was uh, probably too big of a project really for the Apple too. So it uh, maybe I'll, I'll update it and get it uh, working better for a presentation one of these days.
2: It was definitely a neat proof of concept, if nothing else. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, as Eric Shepard once said, if you are a developer and
1: you don't come to Kansas Fest with something to show off, you suck. <laughs> so we expect to see that on display next year. Got some work to do.
2: Don't suck, David. <laughs> Ken, you've been coming to Kansas Fest for a long time, and you've been uh, involved with the Kansas Fest committee for a number of years. What about what about for you? Do you have favorite moments anymore, or is it just, hey, this is just another Kansas Fest that I'm trying to organize and, and get through so we can get to the next year?
1: Kansas Fest has definitely changed for me over the years. Uh, when I first went to Kansas Fest, I was 19, and... I had this whole online world of friends that I'd never met before and getting to know them and walking into a room with 50 people I'd never met and yet who all knew me by name because of online services like CompuServe, Genie, and Delphi. That was really exciting. Just to be able to meet the luminaries of the community like Max Jones and Eric Shepard and Ryan Suinaga and Tony Diaz, it was really impressive. Now I'm at Kansas Fest and... I know most of the people, and I have the routine down pretty well of what needs to be done and when it needs to happen. I'm definitely not staying up as late as I used to. Sheppy commented on this in CSA too, how I used to stay up until 4 o'clock, either coding or going to Denny's, go to sleep, get up at 7 o'clock, and start all over again. Just like him, now I find myself going to bed at one thirty every night and sleeping as much as I can. I never miss breakfast, but I'm certainly not going to Denny's anymore. So I think just it not necessarily being an original experience anymore, and me getting older and more involved in the organization of the event has definitely changed it, but not for the worse. I definitely feel more like a part of this community every year more than I did the previous year. Knowing what the event has been like in the past and being able to be involved in preserving that history and continuity is really quite an honor.
2: So then you're still getting something out of it. You're still having a good time and looking forward to next year.
1: If I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing this.
2: That's probably a good point, yeah.
1: I am also glad that Kansas Fest only comes once a year. (laughs) Yeah. Most of the news from the Apple II community in the last month has been from Kansas Fest, but there have been a couple of other things that are worth talking about. One in particular actually coincided with Kansas Fest in a somewhat ironic fashion. We talked about Jason Torchinski's Apple II concert that was held in Los Angeles through a group known as The Machine Project, which he held at the end of June. He... He held another event in Minneapolis, which we talked about briefly on the last episode. We didn't have a date for that at the time. We finally did get a date and it was the same weekend of Kansas Fest. And we had an attendee, Melissa, who was from Minneapolis. And so she had to miss this concert of Apple II machines in her hometown because she was out of state at an Apple II convention. It was really too bad because obviously she would have loved to have done both. Things like that don't happen in your backyard every day. And
2: this is Melissa Barron who does the glitch weaving and who did the uh, modification to Oregon Trail last year.
1: Yeah, she brought her weavings to Kansas Fest this year and actually had them on display in the exhibit hall, which was a new feature of the event this year. And she actually won second place. There were two people who tied for first place, you and Mike and Sean Fahey, and her presentation was unique because it didn't actually use any computers, but it was original arts and crafts that featured screens from an Apple II. One person actually took one of her like nine-inch square weavings and put it on an Apple II monitor, and it looked like the monitor had actually come on. Neat.
2: I'd imagine for for a creative person like Melissa, who sort of takes her interaction with the Apple II in, in a different direction like that, something like this concert would have been very appealing to her.
1: Right, because it's an original artistic interpretation of a classic computer. Exactly.
2: It's it's not not knocking you know people who write programs or anything, but it it's not just another program.
1: Right. I mean, the Apple II itself is pretty niche, but then to do something like this, it combines two niches and gets even nichier.
2: <laughs> well, we're we're glad that she made it to Kansas Fest.
1: Yes, and we hope she comes back.
3: Yep. Does, does anybody know how she actually made those weavings?
2: Uh, she uses a, a loom to do that, and I'm not sure. There's a specific name for the loom, and I don't remember what that is.
1: I know what the name is. I just don't know how to pronounce it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a specific loom that I was talking to her, and she said it only takes her about 20 minutes to make one of these weavings, so I don't know... Uh, what the process behind that would be. I'm guessing at least part of it is automated. They were pretty cool. They were very cool, yeah. Yeah,
1: I think it's called a Jacquard loom. I know that she recently finished her studies at the Art Institute in Chicago and may no longer have access to the hardware she used to make this, well, I guess you would call it software. <laughs> uh, but she was giving a private presentation to me and I think either Martin Hay or Andy Malloy. I think it was Martin. And she was letting us hold these weavings, and she was telling us how they are designed so that the more you handle them, the more they disintegrate. She was telling me how she's fascinated by the concept of impermanence and the idea that things aren't made to last. So I hope she does get the opportunity to make more, because I would hate to see her current collection disintegrate.
2: That's sort of an interesting viewpoint in light of the vintage computing hobby in general, which seeks to preserve and make these things last as long as possible.
1: She's quite the iconoclast, then. Uh,
2: I guess we're going to have to get her on here and just kind of grill her about it.
1: (laughs) Speaking of preservation, Ewan Wanup emailed me with some preservation work that he's done recently. From 1981 to 1992, Ewan was involved with the British Apple Systems Users Group, or BASIG. And they published a magazine called Apple 2000, which he was involved with. This user group had a software library, which has previously been preserved and made available as a disk called Tabs, which was sold from Syndicom. Now that magazine has been scanned and uploaded as PDFs, and all seven volumes can be downloaded for free from their website.
2: Yeah, I downloaded those myself, and I've been reading through the, the PDFs. Uh,
3: there's some really good
1: stuff in there. Have you gotten to see these, David?
3: I have not. There are so many great scans out there, it's hard to keep up to date with them all.
1: Yeah, especially if you didn't catch these the first time around, to just come into this collection of scans and have literally thousands of pages to read about the Apple II can be quite daunting. But I downloaded one issue, and I was really impressed to see that it was 80 pages. I'm sure that was easier 20 years ago than it is now. But it was not just the Apple II. It was an Apple users group, not an Apple II users group. There's some Macintosh stuff in there. And some Apple III stuff. Excellent. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, as a scanner yourself, you know, not a piece of hardware, but a person (laughs) who scans, did you have any observations as to the quality or nature of these scans?
2: Uh, Well, I tend to think that uh, a scan is done best when you don't really notice that you're reading a scan. The closer it looks, I mean, obviously, it's not going to be the same as holding the paper in your hand and flipping the pages. But if I'm reading through a PDF and I'm not noticing, oh, this is too gray or this text is too light or this color is weird or where there's dirt on this, then then I think that that's a, a pretty high quality scan and Ewan has definitely uh, pulled that off with, with this collection.
1: I don't think that the text was OCR, is that correct?
2: Uh, I don't remember. Uh, I, I don't think that I tested for that, I okay. guess. I,
1: I didn't try to search for any text in there. Because I know that doing OCR correctly can be very laborious to make sure that the automatic character recognition was actually correct and accurate do you feel it's better to just let the automatic scan run by itself and put that out as opposed to not doing it at all? Or if you're going to do it, should you do it right?
2: Well, it sort of depends. For myself, I'm currently using uh, Adobe Acrobat X or 10 or whatever they call it. And the OCR in that is actually very, very good. And so for, you know, if, if like, for example, I'm doing these Apple III COBOL manuals that, that David donated or lent me, for those that each there's three or four manuals and each of them is you know 200 pages i mean i just don't have time to sit there and go through each page and each character and make sure that it's right um, so in that case I, I tend to leave it to uh, adobe and and hope that it gets most of it so far it seems to have now if you're doing like a magazine like computers where there's a lot of code in there you know a basic or assembly language uh, code that needs to be entered in there and you want to search on that then that generally requires a little bit closer supervision to kind of go through and make sure that it's that it's getting this is a zero not an o um, and that sort of thing but for a a information general knowledge magazine like a user group newsletter uh, i think the adobe's ocr facilities are just fine
3: what you find is like the the best way to actually sit down and read with them i love to put those scans on my ipad and just kind of Uh, you know, kind of flip through them sort of uh, as a virtual manual, sort of as they originally were meant to be viewed. How do you always go through them?
2: I have found the iPad to be supremely useful for for reading manuals in that fashion. In the past, if I was working on an Apple II, I would prefer to, to actually print the manual out or print out the pages that I needed to look at as I was working on it because I didn't want to have to go back to a computer screen, sit down, page through, and find it. The iPad's portability and high resolution make it a, a really nice option for having that thing sitting next to me on the desk as I'm troubleshooting or, or exploring.
3: Yeah, it's always nice that we into the retro computing, and it's nice to have the actual tangible manuals next to you, but so many of these were unavailable, that way and to have the scans. It's just fantastic.
1: Right. This is definitely a nice alternative. Do you use an iPad as well, David?
3: We actually have two of them now. I don't know how I ended up with two, but my son and my wife pretty much confiscated my first one. So they gave me a good excuse to buy a second one. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I uh, I really do enjoy using it as, as a, a browser of, of documents and Netflix.
1: And is that just through Apple's own iBooks app?
3: Yeah, I, I um, with iTunes, it's really nice being able to import you know, PDFs and uh, EPUB documents. So I have all of my Apple II manual scans in uh, under iBooks, and that way you can you know whenever the uh, urge hits me to look up that uh, sixty-five-zero-two mnemonic, there it is.
2: Right. Yeah. the 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 nice thing about iPad and and the Safari browser on the iPad is if you go to one of these websites and click on a link that's to a PDF. The browser will ask you if you want to open it in Safari or if you want to open it in iBooks. And if you say, I want to open this in iBooks, it automatically imports it into your iBooks library so it's there later.
3: I didn't even know that. That's great.
1: When you scan something into a PDF, you preserve its data far longer than tangible paper might, but you still lose the physicality of the product. And one of our community's historians is going just the opposite direction. David Grealish used to publish a magazine called Historically Brewed. There were nine issues of it. And he has decided to bring them back into print in the format of a book. And he is finding the funding for this project via Kickstarter, which is what Jason Scott used for his sabbatical, 8-Bit Weapon, the music group used for their tour last summer, and several other groups have used very successfully.
2: That's actually very cool. I have a few issues of David's magazine that I bought way back when. I think they're still lying around in my basement somewhere.
1: Well, now you know not to scan them and put them online.
2: Yeah. This Kickstarter project, uh, it looks like he met his goal a while ago. For the project, is he still accepting donations? I mean, if I wanted to go tomorrow and and make a donation, does that still work?
1: Yes, it does. Kickstarter runs until the end of the fundraising period, not until the goal is met. And his Kickstarter ends at 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday, August 15th. His goal to raise $1,200 by that deadline was met a while ago, and it's currently at just about $2,500. But the more money he raises, the more advanced copies of the book he sells. Right now, this is pretty much the only way to guarantee your copy of his book, is basically by pledging money to pre-order it.
2: Well, that's nice to see that that, uh, the community donated so quickly and so much.
1: This, I think, will perhaps encourage other projects, especially within the Apple II community, for people who have similar ideas and are wondering if it's possible, this sets a precedent. I hope so. Mike, I noticed at Kansas Fest when Sean Fahey, with the help of James Littlejohn, brought a variety of wares to be donated or purchased, among his collection was a lot of magazines, including Nibble, which has already been scanned by Mike Harvey and Brian Weiser, but I'm wondering if you picked up anything to add to your own scanned collection.
2: Uh, I picked up a few of the Soft Talk magazines. There was, a, there was actually a decent collection this year of Soft Talk, which... I think everybody was kind of eyeing those magazines pretty hungrily. What um, <laughs> it's one of the few magazines that really hasn't been scanned and isn't available online for the Apple II. I, you know, went through before they were available for to to pick up because they laid them out on the table the night before, so people could go through them and just sort of see what was there. And I sort of tried to focus my attention on on the soft talks that had articles pertaining to the Apple III just because that's sort of what I, where my hobby has taken me lately. Um, and I think I have, I don't know, six or seven soft talks that I brought home with me uh, from Kansas Fest. What about you? Did you pick up anything?
1: Actually, I don't think I grabbed a single thing from Sean's collection. Hmm. What about you, David?
3: Oh, I did not. I kind of had to bail before those things became available. For oh, that's right. That was pick Saturday up, morning, so. yeah. Yeah, there was quite a collection there, though. So what did you go home with that you didn't go to Kansas Fest with? Besides the CFFA. <laughs> that, was a, uh, that was it, and a lot of good memories. Excellent.
2: Oh, that reminds me. I, I, I showed up this year with the Titan 3 Plus 2E emulator for the Apple Three. It was nice because David brought along his, and that actually helped me troubleshoot some issues that I was having with mine, so I wanted to say thank you for that.
3: Oh, sure. Well, you were I wasn't bold enough to actually plug that thing into my Apple 3, not sh- sure what it was going to do. So <laughs> Yeah,
2: you'd mentioned that a few times, and so I figured I would just go ahead and do it and then tell you about it after I did it. And, <laughs> and I'm glad that I did because your card worked just fine.
3: Excellent. And it was ha- able to help you out, so yep. we both won.
2: Definitely. So I was browsing through the old wiki the other day, uh, and I was reading the Apple 3 entry, and there's a link in there now this is fairly common knowledge if you know anything about the Apple III. Steve Jobs sort of gave the layout specifications for the case for this thing before they had even engineered the, the board. Uh, and he handed these specs off to a designer with the Apple Industrial Design Group named uh, Jerry Manock. Jerry later uh, on kind of took some of the blame for this thing overheating and being a failure. At a recent talk at the uh, Computer History Museum, he sat down and, Sort of explain why the case wasn't actually the problem with with the heat Um, and so there's a a video on YouTube that you can watch it's like an hour and a half but as I was watching this uh, Robert Brunner another uh, IDG alumnus came on and talked about his involvement with the Apple industrial design and he had this slideshow up and as he's going through it uh, one of the things that he flashed on the screen was this thing called the Apple II SI um And he he went out of his way to state that this is not the Mac 2SI. And there's a picture on the screen behind him as he's talking about it, and, I, and I'm guessing this is just a mock-up, but I did a little research on this 2SI, and there's very little information on the internet uh, about it, other than that its code name was Centasa. And from the image that they show, and like I said, this might just be a mock-up, It did have an internal three-and-a-half-inch floppy drive, which the original 2GSs didn't. And I don't know if this is the same thing as the Mark Twain or if they're related. Um, You know, I kind of wish Tony Diaz was here because I'm I'm guessing he knows more about this than I do. But I just thought it was very interesting that there was an Apple II out there that was at least partially designed that I was completely unaware of.
3: Where did that... Fallen in, in the product lineup was it post GS or was it?
2: This was this was meant as a a as the next Apple 2GS. According to um, Bob Bruner, it was this was about 1988 when they were working on this. So it was you know a couple of years after the release of the
1: initial 2GS. Um, do you want to see if we can dial Tony in to get some more information on this? We can do that. Sure. <laughs> Let's try this. <laughs> Whoops. No. Alright, let's see if this works. David, we just have to switch lines for a moment while we bring Tony on. We'll catch up with you after. Hello? Hello Tony, it's Ken and Mike. Hi. Hey, are you still awake?
4: Yeah, I'll be awake for several hours.
1: Hey, we have a question for you. Go ahead, Mike. We're,
2: we're, well, first we're recording the the latest uh open Apple podcast. And I, I was just talking about this, this Apple 2 SI. Have you heard about that?
4: Two S I. Um well there's two things. Somebody on eBay actually called a Mac two SI a two SI, but they I believe there was something else that was probably more vaporware than anything else. Had a has a look like a two GS but a really much a much thinner lip. It was a mock up. I think it was just a wooden block.
2: Okay, is that what that was? Because there there was that the video that um, Robert Bruner gave. He was giving a speech at the Computer History Museum, and he talked briefly, just very briefly about it. And I guess he said it went as far as as getting to tooling. Tooling might have been either well, Mark Twain was Mark Twain was after that. He said this was codenamed the Centassa. Now, I suspect
4: by tooling it meant they might have made that wooden block. <laughs> okay. Mock up. Uh, if you look at the, when you read the book, Apple Design, it talks about, it talks about what they go through for prototyping where they'll actually just make a resin block that's usually solid. Sometimes it's even just wood. CNC machine to route it out, but a lot of times it's kind of weird plastic. And like I've got, a, I've got a few, I think I have a Chinook. And another Mac hard drive. It's basically made of the same stuff. Okay. You can just drop it. But I don't. That the ROM three and the Mark Twain were the next renditions of the 2GS, and nothing ever got made that fit in, in another case design except for the one we know.
2: Okay. Yeah, because the the picture he showed actually had the the internal three and a half drive mounted on the other side, of, uh, as opposed to the Mark Twain.
4: Yeah, that's the one you're thinking about. I know. I I know that picture. That I, that's in. The, I think that's in the Apple design book too. Is it okay? And it's basically
2: a block of wood. Okay. Well, I just, you know, we were talking about it. And I just wanted to make sure that that, you know, I wasn't talking out, out of my butt here. So. <laughs> no. So we figured we'd give you a call. Uh-huh.
4: <laughs> cool. And I happen to and I happen to be in town too. See. You do,
2: yes.
1: Well, thank you for the help. We we appreciate it.
2: Okay.
4: Thanks, right, Tony. I'll catch you later. later.
1: All, All right. right,
2: bye. Yep. And now let's get David back on the line.
1: Hello, David.
3: <laughs> oh, you guys are back. All right. Sorry, Sorry about that. <laughs> I- Oh, no problem. Did you get a hold of
2: them? Yeah, we we did and, and determined that this thing the was probably a block of wood that never really got out of
3: the design stage.
2: <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I wasn't just blowing smoke. So we got Tony on the line and that was cool.
3: He has an amazing collection. He really
2: does, yeah. If there's an, an, an Apple II product that was designed or, or even talked about, he probably knows more about it than anyone else.
1: And there's another Apple product, Mike, that you recently came across or thought you might have. I saw on your Facebook page that you thought you might have met a coworker with a working Apple One.
2: Yeah, no such luck for me on this one. It, the, the story behind it real quickly is that uh, I was at work last Sunday, and I had my Kansas Fest T-shirt on, and he happened to be working that weekend too, so he came up and, and started asking me about and talking about. And we were talking about the Apple II and why I do it in the hobby and this and that. And he mentioned that that he thought he might have an old Apple. Uh, sitting in his basement that he never used. And the more he talked about it, the more interested I became because it's, he said it was the single board computer and it had a cassette interface and you, you had to get your own keyboard and your own power supply and your own case and this and that, which to me sounds, it's, it's either one of those very early Apple twos that they only sold as, as a motherboard before they put it in a case or it was an Apple one. He said he would take a look at it and, and he asked if he found it, if I wanted it. And, you know, I, I sat there and, and, and uh, had to think about it for just, you know, two or three microseconds before I said, yeah, I, I think I'd be interested in that. <laughs> so he came back to work this week, and it turns out this thing was actually uh, a Cosmac, which is a, a single board computer made by Radio Shack around the same time as the Apple One. And, and I think that he, can, he saw the word Mac as part of the name of this thing, and he confused it with Apple. So no such luck.
1: Did he still offer it to you?
2: He did, and I'm going to take it, but uh, it's not an Apple One, and I'm guessing I can't get. Two hundred and thirteen thousand dollars for this.
1: Well, I hope you're not too disappointed with your brush with fortune. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's how it goes sometimes. And we have a couple of quick news items that I came across. The first of which is Cork Express was purchased today by the merger and acquisition firm Platinum Equity. Hat tip to ninety five Mac for posting this. Um, I think a lot of the Apple two and Apple three users will probably remember Quark from uh, Word Juggler and Catalyst. We've been a not-so-fond farewell to them.
1: So you're saying they're known for something other than Quark Express? Well,
2: not these days, no. Hmm. That's pretty much their only
1: product. As an employee in the publishing industry and as a former student of the industry, I was aware that a lot of publishing companies were moving away from Quark Express and toward Adobe InDesign. I didn't realize that Quark's business had gotten so bad that they were up for sale.
2: Yeah, I, I think it was kind of a, a slow erosion of their monopoly. They had, I think at, at one point they had like 90% of the, the market share and they had a track record for poor customer service. They took forever to release products. At one point they said they weren't going to release Quark Express on uh, OS X at all. And when he was called on it, their CEO said something to the effect of, if you, the, mark, the Mac market is shrinking and if you don't like it, just move to another platform. <sighs> they did a good job of alienating their core
1: uh, user base. It's too bad they didn't stick with the platform that they were founded with.
2: Well, I don't know that they would be making a lot of profits on the Apple IIe today.
1: No, but at least if they'd stuck with Apple. Apple certainly has come a long way since Steve Jobs came back to power.
2: That's true. Yep, hmm. Andy Hertzfeld posted a photo of his original Apple II that he bought back in 1978 on his Google Plus stream. So if you're on the stream there, definitely take a look. Uh, it's serial number 1703, which obviously is quite a bit higher than Bob Bishop's number 13, but that's still a pretty cool machine that he's got
1: there. Now, Andy Herzog, isn't he popularly known as the father of the Macintosh?
2: He is, but he also did a lot of work on uh, Apple II stuff and Apple III.
1: Andy describes his Apple II as suffused with the genius and irresistible personality of Steve Wozniak. It inexorably drew me to Apple like a moth to a flame. Very poetic.
2: Classic Andy Hertzfeld.
1: Another (laughs) old-time Apple employee is celebrating Milestone soon.
2: Uh, Yeah, Steve Wozniak is turning 61 on uh, the
0: 11th of this month.
1: Happy birthday, Woz. Happy birthday.
0: What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings.
1: David, tell me about your experiences with eBay.
3: Boy, well, you know, I used to scan eBay all of the time, and I picked up some pretty nice uh, some items there, but for the past probably year, I haven't really spent too much time looking at it. Basically, what you guys bring up, on the podcast, maybe I'll go and, uh, and peruse to see you know what it was, but uh, I haven't really looked too much lately.
2: Probably better for your pocketbook.
3: <laughs>
2: I, I know it is for mine when I stay off of eBay.
3: Exactly. Who tries to go and reclaim those uh, computers long lost to time.
1: Yep. Well, before we get into this month's auctions, we have a follow-up to last month's auction.
2: Just briefly, we talked uh, last month uh, about the Transwarp 2 uh, that was for sale on eBay. Now, this this was not the same thing as the Transwarp GS that James Littlejohn was selling to pay his way to Kansas Fest. This was actually the next version of the Transwarp for the Apple II that was pulled from the market before very many were sold. Sean Fahey, it turns out, was the purchaser of that Transwarp 2. So congratulations, Sean.
1: And this just happened a couple of in conversation at K-Fest? Yeah, he
2: he just brought it up. Uh, we were talking about the podcast, and he'd mentioned that the one that we were talking about, he was the purchaser.
1: Hmm. That kind of reminds me of when Brian Weiser was on the show, and we were talking about an Ultima auction that I had found, and he ended up being the winner. Small world. <laughs> That's a good point. i would never thought about that. When I'm bidding on an Apple II auction on eBay, I wonder who I'm competing with.
2: Yeah, because you can't see the bidder's uh, usernames anymore. eBay now blocks those. Hmm. It used to be that while the bidding was going on, you couldn't, you know, they would obscure that from you. But once it was over, you could see who had bid on it. Now they obscure
1: all that stuff. That might be for the best, because Kansas Fest could be a bit more contentious if I knew that my att- fellow attendees were snatching things off eBay that I wanted.
2: Well, I'm, I'm guessing that they they didn't do it to protect people's feelings at, at Kansas Fest. Probably more of a fraud prevention thing. But sure, okay.
3: So, do you guys snipe, or do you just kind of? Set your maximum bid amount and just hope for the best. It kind of
2: depends. I you know, if I'm look if there's something that I really want, then I use a service called Auction Sniper. But I found that even with that, I kinda have to go into Auction Sniper, set the amount that I'm willing to pay for, it, and just walk away and not look at it again, because otherwise I'll go in, oh, I should bump that up by a dollar. I
3: should <laughs> bump it up by
2: five bucks. You know, but other than that, um, you know, I'll just say, okay, this is the max I want to spend, and if I get outbid, then I get outbid.
3: Very good. I hope I don't ever have to bid against you. <laughs> I'm not actually very good. <laughs> it's been a long
1: time since I bought any Apple toothing on eBay for more than five bucks. The closest I came was the Castle Wolfenstein painting, which we talked about months ago, and I had successfully submitted a bid of about $525, which was well beyond my budget. And fortunately, it was not beyond somebody else's because it went for 2000
2: There are times when I, after the bidding has ended, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief that I didn't win that, because then how am I going to pay for this?
1: (laughs) Sort of a win-win. Yes. So, Mike, what has caught your eye on eBay this month?
2: Uh, Well, I found a, a lot of Apple II cards, and when I mean a lot, I don't mean a bunch of, although there are several of, but this is it a lot of cards. Yeah, I count at least 18 in this picture. Yep, some are more interesting than others. Several are just the standard disk 2 interface cards, but some are, you know, there's a mouse card there, and it looks like there's a couple of Vitex
1: RGB video cards. What's this one that says Microsoft on it? I, I
2: think that's a, a soft card that that might be their first one, judging by that. It's got the, the pin connection for the Apple II or II Plus board rather than the two IIe. Um, there's an 80-column card. There's a power supply. There is a PCPI Apple card. I know those have been kind of popular lately. So, yeah, there, there's a bunch of cards there. Currently, there's been nine bids, and it's only up to $25, so maybe it can be had for a decent price.
1: The gentleman says he's selling them as is. He's unable to test them, and the description of the eBay item doesn't even offer names for what the cards are. It's just a picture and if you can visually identify them, then you know what they are more than this guy does. The auction will probably be over by the time this episode airs, but it's nonetheless an interesting lot to keep an eye on.
2: Sure, especially considering the prices for some of the stuff that shows up on eBay these days. 25 bucks. I'm guessing it'll go for more than that, but hopefully not too much more.
1: I almost feel bad for people who don't know what it is they're selling. We've talked about how exorbitant some of these prices are from people who are trying to game the system, but at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who have valuable things and just don't want to take the time to identify it and sell it piecemeal and as a result, you end up with some really good deals for us, but not necessarily for the guy who's trying to get rid of it
2: Well, it's interesting that you should mention that Ken. I didn't actually put this on the spreadsheet, but I got a copy of Star Saga Two for the Apple two g s for less than forty dollars for that very reason. He had listed it as star sage s a g e rather than Star Saga. Uh, so it, it wouldn't have shown up in uh, searches for anyone who was looking for that specific game. And it is uh, quite a rare game for the Apple IIGS. And I felt bad as I bid on it, so I went ahead and sent him an email saying that, you know, this is probably worth a lot more than than what it's currently at, but he didn't reply or make any changes. So I'm not going to complain.
1: The closest that anything like that ever happened to me was I was trying to buy an 8-bit Nintendo. And I found one, I think, on Craigslist. This was back in the summer of 2006. And the person said it comes with five games, but they didn't say which games. And it was only like 20 bucks and most of the other lots I was looking at were worth 60 or 70. So I went and I met her at a subway station. I bought it from her and I got it home and I pulled out the five games and they were like five of the best games ever made. Like you had Final Fantasy and The Legend of Zelda and some really good games. They all came with the instructions as well. And the Nintendo itself was in pristine condition. And so I emailed her after the fact and I said, I'm really not comfortable accepting what I purchased from you for the price that you asked. May I please PayPal you an extra few dollars? And she was probably, I don't know if she was more surprised than suspicious, but she actually opened up a PayPal account just for that transaction, and she accepted my money. Great. Yeah. So I was glad that I was able to clear my conscience, and I'm sure she was glad to get a few extra dollars as well.
2: And you got a nice Nintendo with some great games.
1: Very nice, yeah. It was meant to be a gift, and, you know, I wanted to give somebody a, a nice system, and that's exactly what I got, and more. That's awesome. I want to mention a couple of buttons that I found. As you have humorously observed in the past, Mike, I seem to have this thing with apparel on eBay. And I found some little accessories that caught my eye. One was just a, a $1 pin made by Ziff Davis, and it says, Ask me how computers work. And there's nothing Apple too specific about that, but... I found it kind of amusing because even though this may have been made 20 or 30 years ago, actually, I don't seem to see a date on it, but regardless of how old it is, it's definitely still applicable today because people find out, for example, that I work a computer role and they say, oh, can you help me with my computer? And I'm sure when they find out what you do for work, Mike, you probably get similar questions.
2: Sure. And then I, you know, yell at them and insult them and they never ask me again. (laughs) No. In all seriousness, uh, yeah, I, I do get a lot of requests like that, and that's that's a neat button.
1: David, are you your family's resident IT expert?
3: Unfortunately. <laughs> but for... my wife got me a T-shirt that says, no, I will not fix your computer.
2: I've seen that, yes.
3: <laughs> I think I actually wore it at K-Fest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and yet you probably do fix them anyway. Uh,
3: for food, yes.
2: <laughs> Looking at the – there's a, an image of a computer on the button that's sort of in cutaway – and it's a drawing, and, and just based on the styling of that image, I'd say that that's a fairly old button. It looks like maybe, you know, one of the old, it's got the old CRT sitting on the IBM XT style case with the, the old clicky keyboard.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, it says that it came with the book.
2: I, I think the title of the book is actually How Computers Work, and there there have been multiple versions of that.
1: Oh, okay. And speaking of buttons that are apparently relevant to our, what's wrong? No. nice segue (laughs) you always make fun of my segues (laughs) this is the hardest part of the show (sighs) here we go (laughs) speaking of buttons that are relevant to our lifestyles there's one that's been emailed to us three times the link to it and that is a little button that shows an old-style film reel or film camera and it says open Apple this button is a product of Apple computer and it says Open Apple in reference to the command button on the keyboard. I'm not really sure why it shows a film reel, but it is nonetheless a promotional product that they created in the 1980s. And since it says Open Apple on it, we've had several listeners send us the link to this button, suggesting that we should buy it. And we haven't. This is a podcast, and you can't see what we're wearing, even though both Mike and I are wearing our Kansas Fest t shirts. So if we had this button, I'm sure we'd wear it proudly and people would see it and have no idea what it was in reference to. But it is a cool button, and if any listener wants to buy for us,
2: <laughs> we'll gladly accept. There you go. Although it would be much cooler if it had a microphone instead of a video camera.
1: Maybe we should make our own buttons. You're right. Maybe we should. Sell, sell them at KFest. Let's see, this button is going for $15. We can sell buttons for 15 bucks. I think we can do that, yeah. This thing might actually become profitable for a change. Huh,
2: what? It's blasphemy.
1: And one last button that I want to bring up is the wings. When I was a little kid and I went on my first airline flight, the stewardess, because that's what we called them back then. I was a flight attendant gave me these little this little pin that showed the wings of the plane that I could put on to show that I had flown and I was just like a pilot.
2: Yeah, I think most kids our age got that. Or my
1: age. Forty? <sighs> you still you still get those?
2: No. They they don't give you those anymore. They won't let you into the cockpit. They oh, think you're trying to hijack like the plane.
1: Do you like movies about gladiators? <laughs> no. Why? Moving on. <laughs>
3: You like Airplane too,
1: huh? <laughs> and this pin has, instead of the airline's logo or name, it has the Apple icon in the middle. That's kind of cool. This was apparently made for Apple education dealers, and they gave them to students upon completion of this program, so they had earned their wings. Better late than never, if you want to complete this program and earn your own wings, you can simply just buy the award and go home with that for a mere $10 plus $5 shipping. And that's the end of my buttons. No more apparel this month. woohoo! So I found a copy of Wizardry 1 on eBay and we were just talking about what language it was programmed in, so it seemed relevant to add to this episode. It is the original Wizardry and it looks like it comes with the original floppy disk and floppy sleeve and manuals and even the box, which is pretty cool. It has a screenshot that the seller took of it running on his Apple II, so it seems to be in tested and working condition. That's always good to see because
2: a lot of these Vintage software packages uh, that I've purchased on eBay—you uh, get all the the extras, the manuals, and things—but the discs often don't work anymore.
1: And this disc, since it does work, you can deprotect it using the hack that Martin Hay won Hackfest 2010 with. That's right. I'd forgotten about that. Because he deprotected Wizardry on his own.
2: Mm-hmm. And it looks like that seller is the same one that was selling something else we mentioned earlier.
1: Oh, you're right. He's the same gentleman selling the lot of interface cards, which is surprising, because I would have thought that if he took the time to test and take a screenshot of Wizardry, that he would certainly put that same amount of attention of detail to the interface cards.
2: Maybe loading the disc and taking the screenshot was easier than trying to figure out what these things were and taking shots of them in action.
1: That's true. But still, that's just such different approaches to listing your items. I wouldn't expect it to be the same seller. Uh, He has several other Apple II items for sale, including other games. So I definitely recommend people just in general check out his online store. His username is peepfrogcom.
2: He's only got 46 feedback responses, but it's 100% positive.
1: And he's from Massachusetts.
2: Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Good
1: old New England. At least he's not Canadian. (sighs) Because they only accept payment in beaver pelts. That's right. Or maple syrup. Or hockey pucks. Or bacon. The last item on our eBay auction this lot is another game, because that's what I tend to look for when I'm on eBay, and it is Archon. Made in 1984. You ever played this game? I have. It's
2: sort of a variant on uh, chess. Is that mm-hmm. right?
3: Are you familiar with it, David? Indeed. I used to work at a computer store, and we used to sell all those old games, and uh, they came in great boxes. Oh, what store did you work for? Uh, Vaughn's. It was the local hacker shop at Purdue. Hmm.
0: Cool. Yeah,
1: I didn't play the Apple II version of Arkan, but I... Enjoyed it quite a bit on the 8-bit Nintendo, which of course shared the same processor as the 8-bit Apple II. Archon came out in 1984, but there was actually a game made by LucasArts, famous for their Monkey Island and Maniac Mansion games, that came out for the original Xbox in 2007, and that game was called Wrath Unleashed. And it is the spitting image in graphics, well, maybe not graphics, but in mechanics and gameplay as Archon. I popped it into my Xbox and I was I didn't even have to read the manual. I knew exactly how to play. And when I mentioned this to their public relations representative, he just nodded his head and said, "Yep, it's just like that." But that kind of turned me off because if I wanted to play Archon, I'd play Archon, not Wrath Unleashed for the Xbox. Anyway, Archon is a really cool game. It's a combination of uh, like a top-down shooter and chess. And it's a great two-player game. Did this version have online play? Could you play it over the modem? I don't think
2: so. No, I don't remember ever seeing anything like that. Yes, it did. uh
1: the DOS version had modem play as far as I can see the Apple II version did not, but if an Apple II user who's actually played the game knows otherwise, please let us know uh it'd be great if it did because, like I said, it's a great multiplayer game, and if you can play it with other people online or off, I'd highly recommend you do so anyway, the best way to play it is to buy it, and you can do that on eBay uh shoeless joe forty four is selling it for just ten bucks plus two fifty shipping.
2: No one has been on it yet.
1: And I don't see any statement that it is tested as being in working condition. But it does appear to come with the box, the manual. He has a variety of pictures on here, which all shows everything to be in good shape. Except a working screenshot. Right. And actually, where's the disc? Oh, there it is. So, okay, so it does come with the disc. Oh, good. So you will get your money's worth, depending on how much you spend. That's coming from Louisville, Kentucky. So we have buttons, we have unidentified interface cards, and we have a lot of games. That's a pretty good month for eBay.
2: I think so,
0: yeah. How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game.
1: And here we are once again with the monthly Name the Game contest. Last month we played an audio clip and invited people to name the game. All they had to do was correctly identify from what game this sound clip came from so i think this is a pretty well-known game because everybody who wrote in got it right uh, i don't have direct experience with it i was more of a donkey kong guy but mike that game was
2: hardhat mac
1: that is correct
2: I, I spent many hours playing
1: how many levels were in that game
2: i have no idea
1: I didn't say I was good at it, I just said <laughs> I played it a lot. <laughs> I see. So we had several contestants this month, and we put all their names into the hat.
2: And this month's winner is Anthony Mongey. Hopefully, Anthony, I pronounced your name right, and if I didn't, I apologize.
1: And this month you win a complete set of 300 Bod magazine. All three issues in hard copy will be mailed to you. Excellent. I haven't actually seen the third issue in print yet. I know it became available to PDF earlier this year. I think it took them a while to get around to printing the copies.
2: Yeah, I think that's ultimately what did the in was trying to put together that
1: last issue. Mm-hmm. So that third issue in print is probably going to be pretty rare. So maybe we'll be talking about it on the next episode of the eBay pickings. Maybe so. And now that we've closed out last month's Name the Game, that opens the way for this month's. And here is the game for the August episode of Open Apple. And Mike, do you know what game that is? I do, in fact. It is Choplifter. Okay.
2: Thanks for ruining that. Oh, man. I'm sorry, I just got very enthusiastic.
1: Well, I guess that means that this month's listeners, all you have to do is write in to name the game at open-apple.net and let us know that the game is Choplifter, and you will be entered into this month's contest. The prize this month is a $20 gift certificate to the Juice GS online store. It was announced at Kansas Fest 2011 that Juice GS will be publishing in 2012, another four issues. And this gift certificate can be used to renew your subscription or to get a new subscription. You can order anything up to $20 for free, essentially, no matter how many items it is. For example, if you want to buy some PDFs. If it is less than 20, you do not get cash back. Or if your order comes to more than $20, you will get $20 off. Good luck! I'll be really impressed by whoever gets it wrong.
2: I I will be sad for them and sort of laugh a little bit.
1: And usually, at this point in the show, we talk about all our other gaming-related goodness that is relevant to the Apple II world, and this month we don't actually have much. There was no G-Shizen contest at Kansas Fest this year. There were no... There weren't many games being played. The Galaga machine at the Rockhurst University campus, the first day I showed up, was not there. That's
2: right. We were all very disappointed.
1: Well, I marched right into the conference services room, and fortunately the staff member who works there, she and I are Facebook friends, and so I knew just who to go to to get the scoop on where this machine was. And it had been sent out for repairs, which it has in the past, and one year it actually was gone the entire week of Kansas Fest. It was a very, very dark Kansas Fest. Mm-hmm. This year, the Galaga machine came back, The very first full day of Kansas Fest.
2: Well, you really turned the screws on her, Ken.
1: (laughs) No, she was extremely helpful, and I very much appreciate Miss Kemp's cooperation. Uh, She knows how important this is to us, and I don't think she had to pull any strings. I think she was just very dedicated to finding out what the story was and relating it to me, and I very much appreciated that.
2: Yeah, that's very awesome. Thank you. Yeah, go Rockhurst. We had a great time playing, or at least I did.
1: Yeah, because Galaga came out for the Apple II, right?
2: Probably in some form that wasn't called Galaga.
1: Mm-hmm. Back then, all sorts of games were being cloned, like you had Hard Hat Mac instead of Donkey Kong. and There was this other Donkey Kong game that I can't remember the name of. It was very similar to the second level. I think it's the second level, where you're pulling out the rivets in the steel beams to make the whole tower collapse. Yeah,
2: that's the second level of uh, Donkey Kong.
1: And I'm trying to remember what the Apple II game was exactly like that level. I remember... You had this little guy who made a sound whenever he ran. He ran pretty quickly, and when he stopped moving, he had, like, one leg out and one arm up. And my brother used to call him K-Man because he looked like the letter K when he was standing still. That's not
2: Apple Panic, is it?
1: I don't think so. Isn't that...
2: That's more of a load Runner
1: clone. Yeah, I thought so. Hmm.
3: I don't know.
1: Ring any bells, David? Uh, I was always
3: bad at games. You didn't play
1: many of them on your Apple II?
3: No, I would load them up and, and check out the graphics. I was always fascinated by uh, by how they looked and uh, tried to figure out how they did what they did. But I, I was and always have been bad at games.
1: So you were more interested in looking under the hood than getting your hands on the joystick. Exactly. Speaking of Loadrunner, there were quite a few iterations of Loadrunner being played at Kansas Fest. There
3: certainly were.
1: And that also means that I can correct this mistake in the very episode in which we made it. There was a competition. At Kansas Fest, Scott Miller had an Apple II running championship edition loadrunner as part of the exhibit hall on the last day of K Fest. Well, and he right. invited everybody to play and write down their scores. Even though he had a prize, it was not for the highest scorer, it was just a completely random drawing. So he acknowledged the highest scorer, who I think was Steve Wyrick. Although, uh, don't hold me to that. And then he drew a random name, and since that was not an officially sanctioned kansas fest event i don't remember who the winner was or what the prize was i should probably follow up with him and get that information
2: yeah i i remember championship load runner being played but i didn't know there was a competition
1: i played the very first level and oh my god i thought i was good at load runner but championship load runner that first level was impossible yeah
2: it's it's much more difficult
1: so all i did was i got all the gold that i could on that first level and i couldn't get all of them then I'd purposely kill myself, get all the gold again, and just try to get as many points as I could that way. It's an interesting strategy. I think it actually got me a higher score than some people who advanced to the second level, because once they got to the second level, they were stuck there, or at least me, I was able to keep doing some things over and over.
2: Sure. And of course, if you'd wanted to play the original Load Runner, I had that up and running on the Apple III at the same Exhibitor Fair.
1: Now, is that all the same levels as the Apple II version?
2: Well, it was the Apple II version.
1: Uh, oh, that's right. I,
2: I had the Titan 3 Plus 2E emulator running, which allows you to play those Apple
1: 2E games. Oh, excellent. Yep. Huh. So I guess the Apple 3E is good for something.
3: <laughs> wow. Sorry. Did the original load runner actually require 64K or would it run in 48K? Uh,
2: I think it required 64K minimum. Yep. Did it? I could be wrong, but I usually am, actually.
3: Why do you ask, David? Oh, I was just wondering if you needed actually needed that Titan card to run it on the Apple III. Yeah,
2: because the built-in emulation gave you a 48K Apple II, so anything that would run within the 48K uh, worked just fine.
1: And if it required 64, it wouldn't run on the emulator.
2: That's right. You, you would need the Titan right. card.
1: Speaking of Galaga, as we mentioned last month, Mike, you and I are going to a pinball tournament this weekend. And also mentioned on the last episode is the local Apple users group, which I visited last month.
2: That would be the Denver Apple Pie, right? Correct.
1: It was a great group. I went back a couple weeks later for their monthly help SIG, where people come up with their Macs and they have questions, and people there try their best to help each other. I went with no problems of my own and hoping I could help, and I ended up proving a little bit of a help with the iLife suite that one person was working with. And then somebody else was interested in learning how we use Audacity to record Open Apple. They previously invited me to be one of their guest speakers at their August meeting, and I'll be going back later this month to talk about the Apple II and Kansas Fest and Open Apple. There has been one surprise already in preparing for that event. I got an email completely out of the blue from a former Apple II user. Actually, he probably still is an Apple II user, saying that he liked my website, Apple II Bits, and we got to chatting back and forth. And I offered to send him some copies of Juice GS. And he gave me his address, and it ended up being just a few miles from where we are at this moment. So I said, hey, as long as you're in the area, why don't you come to the next Denver Apple Pie meeting? I'm going to be talking about the Apple II. He said, that'd be great. I'll be there. That person is Randy Brandt. Of AppleWorks fame? AppleWorks, Ultra Macros, Quality Computers, Claris, everything.
2: Wow, that's, uh, that's a big deal.
1: I think so. It's pretty surprising. I mean... And this is somebody that I would love to see at Kansas Fest one year. So making this initial connection locally will I hope bring him a little bit more into the community, and you know maybe we will see him at K Fest some year.
2: I will definitely make an effort to to be there with you at this meeting.
1: Well, with Randy there, I really don't need anybody else.
2: Well, I'm only going for Randy.
1: <laughs> As am I. <laughs> one thing we should mention before we go is that there may not be a September episode of Open Apple because. The first two weekends of September are very busy. I'm going to be out of town traveling, and I don't know that I'll be around to be a part of the show, unfortunately.
2: And I will be traveling as well.
1: That's right. So maybe we'll do a late August episode. Maybe we'll do a late September episode. or Maybe we'll just skip September and get back on the air in October. But this is definitely not an ill omen. This is not a sign of the show going off the air. So if you don't hear from us for a while, we will be back.
2: Do you think anyone
1: will even notice? I would. And, true. and, you know, I'm doing the show for you, Mike, so I hope you would notice. For me? Oh, man, you're in trouble. Yeah, tell me about <laughs> it. And I do the show for people like David. To whom we will now bid a fond adieu. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, David. It was great to talk to you.
3: Well, thanks so much. Okay, here comes the dogs. <laughs> All right.
1: well, say hello to the dogs for us, and we hope to see you at Kansas. <laughs> next year. Thanks, David.
3: Uh, thanks, guys. On. Thanks for having me on, and... Thanks so much for, for putting Kansas Fest on. That was a great, great time. It was great to see you. All right. Bye, guys. Good luck with your travels. Bye, dude.
0: This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net.
5: And
1: now a word from the D-Pad Podcast. Find them online at dpadup.com.
5: The second plug we have on here is uh, from our other $10 donor, is uh, Ken Gagné, who he uh, who's got a bit more of a geared plug for this. Uh, he's got what's called the Open Apple uh, Podcast. And uh, so what that is, it's actually a podcast dedicated to the old Apple II computers, like the Apple IIe. I still, uh, at my at my grandmother's place, she had an Apple IIe for a long time. I don't know if... if uh, anyone in the family still has it or what? But I used to love going up there just because it's a nice old. No, I mean those outdoor. were definitely cool computers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like fifteen or eighteen years. ago. Those, well, those yeah, are the ones get. Yeah. I had like in our schools to teach us how to type. Right. Yeah. We yeah had those yeah. teachers so, We had those to teach us how to program. In like fifth grade, we learned ba- we learned how to program in basic. Which is like a, you know, Weird. ten print hello that thing, um, but uh yeah. So so how do you talk about that for an hour? Yeah, I'd have to actually listen to that. See yeah, what what's the what, what there to talk about. It is a month. They put out one podcast. They put out an episode a month. I think they okay. uh, they got three episodes out right now. And uh, outside of the first episode, which they were kind of getting getting their footing on that, the episodes since then have all been at least an hour long. So they are actually getting some good content in there. And uh, and yeah, if you want to check that out, that's uh it's. Uh, www.open-apple.net. So it's open apple with a dash in between .net. So good. Yeah. And we'll uh, check it out. Yeah, yeah. They definitely go check, check it out. It if for cool. no other reason to see what they talk about about all yeah, exactly. computers. Go. And uh, they've got they've actually got contests and stuff in there too. So that's that's a cool reason to jump on in there, get some prizes all that stuff. Huh.
0: And yeah. <laughs> the prize you could throw an apple computer Win off the roof.
5: A first edition mouse. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>